2: Well, did the Dow end of the green after all? That's a scorecard on Wall Street, but winners stay late. Welcome to Closing Dow Overtime. I'm John Fort with Morgan Brennan. Coming up on today's show, it's the deadline for 13F reports, which outline the big moves that hedge funds made last quarter. We will bring you those breaking reports as we get them.
3: Plus, we're going to discuss the issues that are top of mind in America's boardrooms with Ursula Burns, the former Xerox CEO who now sits on the board of Uber and Endeavor.
2: But first, let's get to the market action. Stocks ending an up and down session with mixed results. NASDAQ was a standout, closing higher nearly 1%. The uh, the Dow just eking out again. And joining us now is Datatrek Research co-founder Nick Colas and Wilmington Trust, Head of Investment Strategy, Megan Shu, Welcome, guys. So, Nick, uh, in the morning, we get Home Depot's report before the bell. Uh, it's the second highest earnings waiting in the S&P behind Amazon. I learned that thanks to CNBC's uh, Robert Hum. So, how important is the Home Depot guide and the size and nature of the pro backlog, not just to that company, but maybe to the S&P overall at this stage, you think?
1: I think it's very important because the consumer is still holding up the US economy and we want to see Home Depot and the other retailers reporting continue to reflect some optimism that the consumer is still in the game. They've had a lot of challenges in the last year between the drawdown in the S&P and a lot of inflation. So we want to see the consumer still spending and Home Depot is going to be an important tail for that.
2: Yeah. And the, the consumer part of their business had been having trouble as it was. So we'll look closely at that. Now, Megan, when it comes to equities overall, you said uh, a month ago you were underweight equities, slightly overweight tech and communication services. That last part hasn't really gone your way so far. So are you doubling down or changing direction?
0: Well as we look at it I think a few things have changed probably since we last spoke we were expecting uh, with a greater than 50% probability of a recession. At the end of this year or beginning of next year and we've since taken down our recession risk- uh, to roughly 50 50 maybe slightly in favor of a soft landing so the economic outlook has certainly improved. Inflation coming down and the consumer remaining resilient is a key part of that. But as we look at our overall risk weighting, we are not yet leaning back into risk mostly because the risk reward of equities just looks still very unattractive and we have now the market I would say more than pricing in a soft landing so has gotten uh, borderline euphoric by some measures and we're probably going to enter this churn period here that we've certainly seen growth uh, and tech stocks come off a little bit and a nice surge in value over the last month or so but I would say long term um, those parts of the tech market and communication services still look attractive to us. I think the artificial intelligence story is still there. I think it's going to be very transformative over the next five years. I'd be a little bit more cautious here on some of the more consumer sensitive, sensitive areas of the uh, market.
3: Yeah, we keep talking about soft landing, Nick. Um, and we know the equity market is pricing that in. And it's, a, it's a key narrative right now. But what's the bond market telling us?
1: Yeah, the bond market's telling us not a great story, because it's worried both about a rising inflation, because we haven't had a recession, which is what pulls inflation down over time, and real rates are rising as well, which is perhaps even more troubling. If you look at where real rates were, even just a few months ago, back in April, they were low 1%, now they're high 1%. That's pushing overall yields higher, and it's going to continue to do so. We're pretty bearish on bonds until we see a, a, a 10-year that's in more like 5% than where it currently is. Because real rates are rising, we have a A lot of issuance coming up. And when you layer that all together, I think it feeds into that narrative that perhaps we've got to wait for the equity market to catch up with reality for a few months before we get that final end of year rally that we usually get. So tough times for the next few months.
3: Yeah. Megan, I want to get your thoughts on this and and what all of it means for how you position yourself across markets more broadly right now.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that the focus is probably going to start to shift maybe a little bit away from inflation. Towards interest rates and specifically real rates um, and what that means to consumer credit because that's where we're starting to see maybe the starts of some potential cracks and it's still early. Um, but if you look at consumer uh, credit card delinquencies and uh, things of that nature they're kind of falling into the same category as a lot of other data which is deteriorating at an alarming rate but still not yet back to pre pandemic levels so we're watching those things closely I would say energy and yields are interesting because they're increasing probably. Uh, in good part because of increase in demand and growth expectations we have. Uh, Atlanta feds GDP now uh, forecast of above 4% uh, for the third quarter which is really remarkable given mm-hmm. where we started the year but those could start to bite if they continue
2: right. Now, finally, Nick, um, Megan said equities are looking a bit euphoric. She sounds skeptical. But in the medium term, you know, after Q3 is done and that's just a few weeks out, you sound pretty bullish. You think Q4 is going to be strong for stocks?
1: Yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, if, we, if we look at the next 50 days, definitely tough times. But we still have the fundamentals of a good bull market going with us. We still have investors focused on corporate earnings rather than macro risks. Uh, we still have looking forward to the Fed cutting rates next year. The classic lineup, the classic up for a bull market is absolutely still in place. We just have to live through the next few to 60 days until we start seeing Q3 earnings and that end of year rally. So long term, definitely bullish. Short, short term, it's going to be tough.
3: All right, Nicholas and Megan Shu. thanks for kicking off the hour with us uh, with a mixed picture for, for the equity market here to start the new week. It was a solid day for chip stocks. Shares of NVIDIA jumping after Morgan Stanley reiterated that the stock uh, as a top pick heading into earnings. That move driving the SMH ETF higher, too. Let's bring in senior markets commentator Michael Santoli with a broader look at the semis. Hi, Mike.
4: Hi Morgan. Yeah, we actually had some concern late last week about a potential breakdown in the semiconductor group. Nvidia also leading the way to the downside in this correction. A little bit of uh, relief here. This is a two-year uh, chart, and I think maybe explains why there was some bigger-picture concern. Because you know, not hard to make the case that we we essentially just went back up to the old highs and failed there. That's the 50-day moving average right there. A lot of times you'll get like a break of it, and it'll uh, you know kind of recover before too long, as we saw right there. So I wouldn't say that today's action uh, completely turned the tide, right, because you still have, you know, that look to it at the moment. But it showed you that the dip buying instinct, at least right now, is still pretty active. See if it works. Now, other uh, metrics that are being watched, various cross-asset relationships, such as the dollar. Here is the uh, exchange-traded instrument that tracks uh, the U.S. dollar index. Uh, Had a pretty aggressive move recently, And like so many of these things, it's again up at the top of its range. If you look at uh, crude oil, also a similar thing. If you look at a two-year chart, it's back up to the top of A range, but not toward the highs. Similarly, uh, you you look at things like uh, even the Treasury yields. They're kind of challenging the highs from late last year, but not yet above them. So it's at this point moving in the direction of suggesting a reflation or higher yield move, higher real rates, as you guys were just talking about, but not yet really breaking into new territory where you'd have to say there's a rethink uh, of the all the asset relationships and valuations surrounding it, guys.
3: Yeah, and of course, uh, any of these metrics sort of speak to the economy and a reflection on the economy and economic growth, and not just here in the U.S., but globally. But Mike, yeah. when you see energy higher, when you see yields higher, when you see the dollar higher, how unusual is that uh, dynamic, that correlation to be playing out here?
4: I mean, in a lot of ways, it's exactly what you would expect to see in a reaccelerating U.S. economy, and in a reflation-type environment, uh, even though a lot of times those things will work inverse, when, when basically people have been caught betting on deceleration and it looks like we're not getting it just in time, that's where you get uh, some of these moves working in the same direction.
2: Mike, thanks. Let's get now an update on a developing story surrounding U.S. Steel, the stock jumping today after a bid from rival Cleveland Cliffs. Uh, and late in the day, privately, Uh, Privately held, Esmark made its own offer as well. Uh, Pippa Stevens just spoke with the CEO of Cleveland Cliffs about that new bid from Esmark. She joins us now. Pippa.
3: Hey, John. Well, Cleveland Cliffs CEO Lorenzo Gonzalez telling me he does not view this as a serious offer, saying, quote, I don't believe this is serious by any stretch. He said Esmark is not Apple and they are, quote, not in a financial position to do anything like that. Now, SMark's offer offers $35 per share in an all-cash deal, while Cleveland Cliffs offer for U.S. Steel included a mix of cash and stock. Now, in terms of next steps, Gonzalez told me he's going to continue to engage with U.S. Steel, and that he wasn't surprised they rejected the first offer. But he also said he is not going to sweeten the offer, saying, quote, my first offer will be my second offer, my third, my last offer. He pointed to support from the United States Steelworkers Union as a key factor that is backing this deal of Cleveland Cliffs and U.S. Steel. Back over to you. All right. Of course, we did see shares during regular trading hours jump for both Cleveland Cliffs and for U.S. Steel, which I think finished the day at about $31 a share. Pippa Stevens, thanks for bringing us the latest. After the break, former Xerox CEO turned Uber and Endeavor board member and so much more. Ursula Burns joins us to talk about the biggest issues being discussed right now in America's boardrooms. Overtime is back in two.
5: Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. Next, give it to you. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. Thank you. Oh, that—that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Next, go give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com.
6: When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all—saving, researching, investing. Now you can take those investments to the next level with Yahoo Finance. Our sponsor today. I have an investment account with Schwab and a 401k with Fidelity and I use Yahoo Finance to consolidate them so it's incredibly easy to manage. They've been helping great investors like you for over 25 years. So whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking to level up, Yahoo Finance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com.
2: Welcome back to Overtime. Berkshire Hathaway's 13F is out. Leslie Picker has details. Leslie.
7: Hi, John. Yes, uh, Berkshire Hathaway disclosing its 13F filing for 2Q. These are positions as of the end of June. Uh, they decreased... Uh, The firm decreased its stake in General Motors by about 17 million shares. That stake uh, essentially cut in half there, down about 45 percent during the quarter, um, bumping up a stake in Capital One by 26 percent. To hold roughly $1.3 billion worth as of the end of the quarter. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway also revealing a new stake in some home builders here, some smaller stakes, but still noteworthy nonetheless. DR Horton, that stake worth about $726 million at the end of the quarter. Lennar, a much smaller position for Berkshire, worth about $17 million, but uh, again, two new stakes in home builders. The firm sold out of McKesson and Marsh and McLennan. Uh, about, that was about an $800 million stake last quarter, so somewhat sizable there. Uh, As I mentioned, these positions are as of the end of June. They may have changed in the six weeks since, but, uh, you know, decreasing a stake in GM, increasing a stake in Capital One, and some new stakes in some home builders. That's uh, the Berkshire Hathaway 13F filing, John.
2: Leslie, thank you. Uh, Mike Santoli, Capital One had a nice run at the end
4: of June. You wonder how much of that uh, Berkshire might have caught. Right. It was also happening when, when there was getting some relief about the regional banking uh, issues. A very cheap stock on paper, if you believe the consumer is going to hold together. Capital One, that is. Uh, it also it seems as if Berkshire has preferred it to the pure banks that it uh, formerly uh, had owned a lot of. But To me, the home builder stakes, even though they are small uh, relative to the size of, of Berkshire, is interesting in part because. Berkshire Hathaway has tremendous exposure to housing, broadly speaking, through its wholly owned subsidiaries. It owns Clayton Homes, which is a manufactured home company, Benjamin Moore, Johns Manville. It has a lot of uh, windows, so to speak, on this area, so clearly feeling like the fundamentals and the value was in place. For those home builders, right there.
3: Yeah, I always think it's interesting when Berkshire release, releases its 13F, Mike, because, I mean, by nature, when we get these filings, they're already dated and things could have hypothetically or theoretically changed as well. But when Berkshire releases, stocks always respond, it would seem, and that's the case here with the home builders.
4: Well, and I would say one reason for that, Morgan, is that uh, unlike hedge funds who are in and out of a lot of things, for the most part, Berkshire is buying things to own them for the foreseeable future. Uh, Usually it's not just a trade that's not purely always true, but typically I think you can take away that there was some value spotted during the quarter uh, and it's not simply uh, looking to flip it for a quick uh, profit.
3: All right. Mike, thank you. We'll see you later this hour. Corporate leaders are grappling with a number of issues right now, including economic uncertainty, geopolitical risks, social issues. Our next guest has a front row seat to boardrooms across the country. Let's bring in Ursula Burns, chair, chairman, chairwoman of Teneo and co-founder of Intergram. She is also currently sitting on the boards of Uber, Endeavor, IHS Holdings and several private companies and is the former CEO of Xerox, where she became the first black woman to lead a Fortune 500 company. Ursula, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being with us. Welcome.
8: Great to be here, Morgan. Very good.
3: Uh, So a number of things to discuss with you. But the first one I do want to start with is the economy, uh, which seems to consume so much of our conversation and so much of our airtime here at CNBC. From your key vantage point, uh, how are companies and different uh, industries uh, across corporate America thinking about the economy and this idea perhaps of a soft landing and, and data that's been more resilient than expected?
8: I think that your last statement is what I am hearing and seeing across the board in just about every industry, a softer landing than expected, better performance than um, expected. Not that not that, that necessarily shows up in numbers, but just a, a lot more confidence in the next quarter, um, probably the next two quarters, even with the geopolitical risk, even with the slowing of China, even with the social issues that we're dealing with, most of the companies are seem to be prepared and comfortable with their positions and trying to use this time from a in an opportunistic way. Um, MA opportunities or investing opportunities, and in some cases, lightening their cost opportunities. So it's been a little bit of a crazy run, if you think about it, because we were all waiting for this big You know, Damocles to come down and it just didn't appear. And I think people are now settling into a couple of quarters ahead of time being okay and a little bit of uncertainty that they can deal with. And I think a little bit more optimism than um, even six months ago.
3: Yeah. And and we know that various companies have tightened belts or maybe pulled back on certain types of spending amid the uncertainty this year. Yet, Hiring and the labor market still is going so strong. And yes, job openings, the jolts data has come down a little bit, but it's still much stronger than we typically see. Historically speaking, are you finding that the companies you work with are hanging on to their employees longer? And what does that labor dynamic look like, especially when you do see, for example, certain unions and certain industries uh, taking a much more aggressive stance right now?
8: Yeah, the companies I'm involved with generally are white collar worker employees, so more tending towards that um, demographic, not the mass employment areas. And across the board there, um, I remember when I spoke to you maybe a year ago, we were, we were clearly the year of the worker. The worker um, called the shots. There was a huge amount of sensitivity to keeping people in their seats, paying up for jobs, paying up for talent. That's definitely slowed significantly. Obviously, talent, particularly tech talent, is still um, gold. It's like gold, so people hold on to it like you wouldn't believe. But I think a lot more companies, and I think I know a lot more companies, are starting to roll back a lot of this um, whatever they want. Kind of a theory, like anything they want will do. It's let's cut, let's figure out a way to work in this current environment. You know how many days you're going to come to work? Let's start to normalize pay, not over hiring. As a matter of fact, not literally lightening their load strategically. Um, And technology is helping this a little bit more and I'm sure we'll get into that. So there's a whole play, a normalization towards uh, just, I think now a little bit more balance. It was worker before worker and then the employee. Now, I think it's a little bit more balanced and smart companies are using this time to settle.
2: Ursula, uh, good to see you. It's John Ford. So what about diversity? In this environment about three years ago, I think it was you took the controversial position that businesses might need to set diversity quotas for hiring because other methods hadn't worked to diversify workforces. I think you were uh, quoted as saying I was dead set against quotas, but now I think quotas are absolutely positively acceptable since the Supreme Court ruling against affirmative action in college admissions. The tide seems to be pushing against corporate policies also. So what happens
8: there now? I think that smart companies will continue their push towards building, assuring that they keep training, integrating diverse teams. There is no doubt, every piece of fact, every fact that we have here shows that diverse teams perform better than non-diverse teams. I hate to use this as a reason to do it. I think there's a, there's a more basic reason to do it. We have the right to be there just like the white guys have a right to be there. But I think that the fortunately the math lines up in our favor as well. Companies that are smart are going to continue to hire broadly across a spectrum of backgrounds, ethnicities, gender, um, sexual orientation, Companies that are smart are going to continue to have diverse teams hmm. and people who don't, you know, I, I, you know how I feel about this. You can do whatever <laughs> you want. right? Your shareholders, your employees and your customers and hopefully the communities that you do business in will be able to tell you whether they like what you're doing or not. OK. And if you and if you don't want to do it, I think you're playing a short game that's not very profitable, and not very good.
2: Now, on a very different but also workforce-related topic, remote work. That there's also been a pendulum swinging on that where, at first, a lot of those white-collar employers that you were talking about, that you work with, were saying, hey, no need to come back to the office. But now it seems like the CEOs I talk to, even if they're saying only be in three days a week, they'd really like people in a lot more than that. How does this play out over the next year or so, and what should CEOs
8: and boards be saying? First of all, I think that we have to make clear that we uh, understand this is a little bit on diversity as well. Teams actually play an important part in solving complex problems. Having a team that never ever sits in the same room, never interacts in what I call in 3D in person with the quiet times, with the argument time, having a team that doesn't actually blend together, it doesn't seem to be maximizing your um, talent base and your assets. Companies across the board By the way, both public companies, but social justice organizations I'm engaged with, not-for-profits are moving back to, this Sound this looked good when we had to do it, but we don't have to do it anymore. Three days, four days back in the office, because there is something to be said about training the younger generation and the older generation about solving problems in a group and in a team that you cannot do by having everybody, the 40 team members in their houses. We're seeing a lot more of a balancing, right? We swung the pendulum because we had to, where everybody was away and and kept it that way. And now, and then before that we had it, everybody came in every day, all the same time. Mm-hmm. Neither of those two things are right. Somewhere in the middle is right. And what we're seeing three to four days with a core day, one day where everybody is in picket or two days when everybody's in picket and then your work teams decide other ways is mm-hmm. what is, I'm seeing more of.
3: Yeah. Uh, I do have to get your thoughts, and this has been the case across companies, across industries, but particularly consumer-facing companies. The role that they should play or not play when it comes to social issues, political issues, areas that can become very controversial very quickly, uh, how to navigate that?
8: Yeah, this this is one that's, to me, very interesting. And this is one that has, I've adjusted my thinking a little bit. Uh, I was a firm believer that companies have to speak about critical social issues. And what's a social issue? If we can call voting rights a social issue, I can't imagine a company not participating in that. If we can call access to great education, so having an education system that produces the workers that we need, the talent that we need, if we call that a social issue, we have to engage in that. If you talk about access to healthcare, broadly across the spectrum, companies have to participate in that. These are the bread and butter of where value is created. They need workers who are trained, et cetera. I now am, by the way, I still believe that. But I think that you can't talk about everything all the time. There's some things that you just have to, let somebody else take the argument please because it's really not in your wheelhouse. That's not acceptable. So you can't have every issue that comes up, you become an expert and you become a, you know, a flag carrier nor can you have what happened in the past, which is you had no voice about anything. I think what we're seeing now, which is good, is that companies are picking their picking their fights, picking their points of view, picking where, f- because it impacts their business, because their region is affected by it. They are becoming smart, using the credibility that they have, using their mission statements to rally around issues in a form that helps their companies and their points of view. This is not the personal love of the CEO, right? This is not the CEO says, I like this or not. Look at your business and make sure that you align around the things that you can align around. Being silent, that's done. You can try it if you want. One of those constituents I just talked about are gonna be very angry at you if you have nothing to say about anything. That's not gonna work. Saying something about everything, that's not gonna work. Pick your fights, pick the battles, Go and make them relevant to you and to your business and have a point of view. It's never been easy. I don't know, you know, I, I this idea that we try to avoid controversy is an interesting point of view. I ran two companies and I maybe I did it poorly, but I ran into controversy all the time. So I tell you, it's just a way, it's par for the course. You have to have a point of view. You get paid a lot of money to have an opinion. So I think companies should.
3: Yeah. An- another area that's uh, maybe perhaps controversial in the sense that we just don't know how it unfolds, how it evolves, and is already stirring some areas of debate is artificial intelligence, speaking of new technologies. Um, the conversations that are happening in boardrooms, in different companies, and in different industries right now around adoption of this.
8: Yep, first is get smart, right? Let's make sure we understand what the heck we're talking about. The, the number, everybody who speaks about AI, in, you know, six months ago, spoke about this thing called ChatGBT. If that's all it is, I mean you're you're short suing yourself obviously that's not all it is it's more than that get smart with how this new technology set can impact the upside of your business and the downside of your business how it can create risks and opportunities so risk with data getting out risk with falsehoods which you know all of the things that we know but also opportunities get smart number 2 get help this is it's amazing. We don't know enough about this. There are companies that can help you scale AI. You, you know companies that can come in and help you understand what it is that you are looking at. Most of the boards that I'm on have no idea. We're learning, by the way, now, what this really means, what it is. We don't have that technology know-how on the board. So getting help is second. And then third time I look at third, I look at security risk, those kinds of risks. that you have personal data risk, make sure you have that embedded in your practices, AI are not, but make sure they're, and then look for upside and downside. Mm. All that, that's what we do with new opportunities. This is a place where if, we do, if we're if we not careful, the cart could be, you know, the, the barn door would be open. We don't have enough legislation or rulings in the government to actually protect. Businesses are gonna have to be really agile here, make sure that they understand what they're talking about, get help, get experts in get advisors in mm. literally make sure that the basics are covered you don't have personal data all kinds of security things and yeah. then look at the business and business models and you should be able to adjust i tell you what most of the people who i talk to have no clue they have no they all talk about it and i say thank god they're not doing anything because right now they don't really understand they know it's something they should know about yeah they know it's something they should mention but fortunately, they're not running to do do anything. They're spending time learning how it could help them, their customers, their clients, the communities, their investors.
3: Ursula Burns, it's great to get your thoughts on a wide range of topics. Thank you so much for joining us today.
8: Thank you. I love being on. Great. All right. Great to have
2: Ursula Burns. And tonight on Last Call, do not miss Brian Sullivan's interview with Florida governor and GOP presidential candidate Ron DeSantis. They're going to discuss many of the same issues facing corporate America. Here's part of what the governor had to say about his
4: longstanding fight with Disney.
9: This is a great place to do business.
4: Your competitors all do very well here. Universal SeaWorld, they have not had the same special privileges as you have. So all we want to do is treat everybody the same and let's move forward. I'm totally fine
9: with that, but I'm not fine with giving extraordinary privileges, you know, to one special company at the exclusion of everybody else.
2: And catch the rest of that interview uh, tonight, 7 p.m. right here on CNBC. After the break, we'll talk to banking expert Charles Dellara, who used to run the Institute of International Finance about new comments this afternoon from the chair of the Federal Deposit Insurance Agency about bank regulation in the post-Silicon Valley Bank era. Over time, we'll be right back.
6: At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See Center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time.
2: Some news out of Amazon. CNBC.com confirming that the company's head of devices and services, Dave Limp, plans to retire. That news first reported by Uh, the Wall Street Street Journal. Notes Limp will be the latest high-profile employee to depart recently. He'd been there for more than 13 years since the Kindle was young, Morgan. Echo and Alexa sort of grew up under Limp. They also launched that ill-fated Amazon phone, but under Limp, they used devices and services to build out an ecosystem around prime and retail and so much more.
3: Yeah, I mean, in many ways, he was kind of the hardware guy. He also oversaw Project Kuiper, which is the satellite constellation, broadband satellite constellation that's uh, in the works too. It'll be interesting to see how all of this proceeds now and who who comes off the bench. Yep. All right, well, time now for a CNBC News update with Bertha Coombs. Hi, Bertha. Hey, Morgan.
10: Fulton County, Georgia District Attorney, the Fulton County, Georgia District Attorney's Office is apparently presenting the case that could indict former President Donald Trump and his allies for interfering in the 2020 election in Georgia. The pace of the presentation seems to be getting faster with witnesses who were supposed to appear Tuesday called in this afternoon. The plot of the book and movie The Blind Side has a new twist. NFL star Michael Orr alleges in a court filing that the couple who took him in as a teenager misled him into thinking that they were adopting him, when instead he was being placed in a conservatorship. Or is asking the court for the termination of that conservatorship and an injunction barring the family from using his name and likeness. And travelers can now order food directly to their gate at some of the country's busiest airports. Airport concessionaire OTG management is removing the iPads from airport restaurants and replacing them with mobile phone ordering services. Customers will use QR codes posted around terminals or on a website to place their order. My worry would be, though, if they didn't get my order in time for me to board.
2: Oh, don't worry about that. They rarely do. But at least you don't have to touch (laughs) that nasty screen.
3: Uh, I'm excited. I'm excited for this. I feel like it can only be up from here. Uh, Bertha Coombs, thank you. Up next, do regional banks need more regulation? We're going to discuss the latest comments from the chair of the FDIC when we're joined by banking expert Charles Delara. We'll be right back.
2: Welcome back to Overtime. Some potential new regulations in the pipeline for large regional banks. The FDIC chair outlining a new proposal, changing how those lenders prepare living wills in case of their own failures, giving regulators some more options. Joining us now is Charles DeLara, former managing director of the Institute of International Finance and former NBER board member. Charles, welcome. So, um, the KRE regional bank ETF took a leg down starting at 2 p.m. when the FDIC chair started talking to my high school classmate Aaron Klein at Brookings. We've been hearing that the SVB, uh, post-SVB regulatory pressures are going to encourage more consolidation among the regionals. Based on what we heard today, do you expect that's the case?
11: John, good to be with you this afternoon. Uh, I think that pressures for consolidation will grow independent of what the regulators do. Um, I think the real issues And I've read Marty's speech, and I appreciate that many of the issues here are very difficult to resolve because regulators and bankers have been trying to build resolution plans now for well over a decade, but it still looks like we're far away from practical, hands-on resolution plans that can really resolve banks, even medium-sized banks such as SVB, without having to resort to systemic risk designation. Hmm. Uh, consolidation may well be in the offing, but I think there's some things missing from the game plan that was outlined today. Okay. And perhaps we can touch upon that. Well, b- before we
3: get
2: into that, tell me, what do you think is the impact on regional bank equities? Because we saw um, the, the regionals get a pop after the West news, uh, you know, several days ago, a couple weeks ago, but they've been sliding a bit since.
11: Well, regionals still have an important role in the financial system. And I think many of them are very well managed. And I think those that are continuing to generate solid profits during this period of rising interest rates can still can still perform well. Um, I think the real problem is not so much uh, the downward pressure through regulatory moves. Uh, there will be consolidation over time. There's no doubt about it. And some of the demands of risk management, of governance, etc., are very substantial now on regional banks, and they're not easy for all regional banks to to meet those demands, John.
3: Charles, it's Morgan, it's good to see you. Basic question here, do these proposed regulations actually make the banking sector safer and healthier?
11: Uh, Good afternoon, Morgan. You go right to the heart of it, don't you? Uh, (laughs) I'm not sure, I have to be honest, I'm not sure they do. What disappoints me is that when I step back and look at the three regional bank failures in the U.S. that took place this spring, I see major issues in three areas, risk management failures, management and board governance failures, and supervisory failures. And I really have not seen much coming out of the Fed or the FDIC that addresses those issues. It's interesting to hear about new capital requirements, but to be honest, Morgan, I think that capital requirements too often are the supposed answer when they really may may not be the correct answer. Um, It's interesting to hear about requirements on holdings of long-term debt, but that's an expensive proposition. Uh, We do have a problem in the regional bank system over insured and uninsured depositors. But it seems to me that a lot of those problems can be addressed through vastly strengthened risk management procedures. And accountability of management and boards of directors. You know, I served on a board for eight years or so and just stepped off a Canadian bank board last year. And I know the intensity with which boards have to manage risk, including the risk management committees, how a bank like Silicon Valley could have 18 risk management committee meetings without without a chief risk officer is beyond me, and how the management and board of directors could fail to be held accountable is also a bit beyond me. And then there's the final issue of supervision. Uh, the Federal Reserve identified risk mm-hmm. management weaknesses in Silicon Valley Bank in 2019, Morgan. And I'm still waiting to see a detailed granular game plan for strengthening risk management, for strengthening supervision at regional banks.
3: That's such a key point. And there's perhaps no one more experienced and more renowned when it comes to navigating the turbulence of the banking sector during a tough financial times. So we appreciate your thoughts today. Charles
11: Delara. Good to be with you and John. Thank you, Morgan.
3: Up next, Mike Santoli is back with a look at the recent jump in prices at the pump and why the economy could be primed to handle higher fuel costs.
2: Welcome back to Overtime. Michael Santoli is back with a look at
4: the recent pop in gas prices. Mike? Yeah, John, we were just talking about all those things that look like they're migrating up to the top end of the range. This is wholesale gasoline prices, uh, as you can see, on a really good run right there. And and getting up to that sort of ceiling level gets you back to above where you were before the Ukraine war uh, spike. So clearly a little bit of a pressure point in the economy also shows us some reacceleration, perhaps, in growth happening or anticipated as inventories come down. But take a look at this longer term chart of total miles driven in the U.S. This is a monthly chart. It's seasonally adjusted. And it shows you, obviously, we had the big crash during COVID. But even now, it's recovered only back to levels that were first seen in late 2016, early 2017. So you put that together with the fact that we also have about 10 percent better fuel mileage in terms of total cars, on the road uh, and incomes are up a lot. And what you basically have is gasoline does not pinch the budgets in aggregate of the U.S. economy nearly as much as it did a while ago. So the same price per gallon today is not uh, as impactful as it might have been uh, years past.
3: Okay, that's interesting, that's very contrarian. Mike Santoli, as always, with a smart chart. Up next, former Walmart U.S. CEO Bill Simon and former Target Vice Chairman Jerry Storch on what to expect from the barrage of retail earnings this week. Stay with us. After the break, two former bigwigs from rival retailers. Walmart's Bill Simon and Target's Jerry Storch gonna tell you the key items to look out for when the big box retailers report earnings this week. Oh, and by the way, retail sales. A lot of reads on the consumer, stay with us. Welcome back to Overtime. It is a retail-heavy week for Wall Street, Home Depot, Target, Walmart, and TJX are all reporting earnings, which could offer a glimpse of the American consumer's health. Those reports come after consumer sentiment ticked lower on Friday and ahead of retail sales data tomorrow morning. Joining us now are Bill Simon. He is the former CEO of Walmart's U.S. division, and Gerald Storch, the former vice chairman of Target and former CEO of Toys R Us. Good afternoon to you both. Uh, Jerry, I- I'll start with you. What are you watching for this week? even as we've seen some signs that consumers are still continuing to spend, but racking up credit card debt to do it?
12: Well, overall, the consumer is definitely still stressed. And sales for merchandise, for things, have slowed consistently since peaking last summer. So all the growth is in services, which again, by nature of it, retailers don't by and large sell services. So you're not going to see it in their results. So I would expect to see a continued struggle on some of these retailers. Walmart is executing very well. I think their numbers are going to be fine. Target is still struggling. The execution is off, and they're still trying to find their strategic footing as well. Home Depot is a star, but they're comping incredible, spectacular performance during the pandemic, and it's kind of hard to beat numbers that are that high.
3: Yeah. Bill, I want to get your thoughts on this, especially when I think about uh, your former employer, Walmart, where grocery is a big part of... Uh, the tickets. And we know grocery prices and food inflation have continued to tick higher and, and consumed more of consumers' wallets, which is part of the reason Walmart has been doing better than Target, which tends to be more discretionary.
9: Oh, yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head and, and Jerry was right on. I think Walmart will, will end up doing well, but it's based on, you know, their food business, which is over half of their business and still inflating at pretty substantial numbers. And, and are, that's really the difference in performance between between uh, Walmart and Target right now, I think that the broad lines, the general merchandise side of the businesses are probably operating pretty comparably. But uh, food and food inflation is something I'll be looking for. Uh, it takes a little while for that to cycle through, and uh, that should be in the forefront, something mm-hmm. that I think we're paying attention to.
2: Hey, Jerry, my two big concerns or questions is uh, contractor project pipelines and, and, you know, from Home Depot tomorrow morning, are are those smaller projects still good enough for a good guide and a good quarter? And is the credit-stretched consumer still treasure hunting at TJ Maxx? Or is the story going to be all groceries at Walmart? What do you think?
12: Look, I'm a big fan of TJ Maxx. It'd be one of my top picks. It has been for a long, long time. And why? Because they represent value. And that's where the consumer is going. That company's worth almost $90 billion. Think about it. You know, companies like Macy's or Nordstrom or Dillard's, the Coles, the, the department stores—they're all single-digit, billions of dollar valuation. Whereas TJ Maxx is ninety billion. It's like the 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 you know the the, the parasite devoured the host. This is all about how they beat department store prices. They're the whole market now. When you really take a look, so they're they're doing fine. And this environment's built for them. Walmart's also in an environment that's built for them, as Bill mentioned. This is the time when Walmart thrives and Target doesn't do as well. As for Home Depot, it's a matter of time time frame. I think they're going to struggle a little bit to show positive gains. I know, in fact, I'll bet they're going to be negative. Why? It's an open book exam. Look at retail sales last month. Their category was down by 3%. So it's obviously shrinking what they're selling right now. So there are a lot of pressure from interest rates. Mm. And again, they can't comp what they did before. So they're going to be under pressure in the short term. Okay. But they are an amazing operator. And they've posted numbers that have compounded this growth year after year after year. So I expect them to return to normal as we get uh, you know into next year. So what happens in the short term? No one knows. Knows,
2: but they execute brilliantly. Bill, are we going to see uh, pressured margins again in part because consumers are, are tilting still toward essentials and groceries, which are lower margin? And maybe because of shrinkage after incidents like the one that we saw out of L.A., um, you know, just hours ago?
9: Yeah, look, shrink has been a problem for years, and it's it's, a, it's accelerating, I think, the, 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 the brazen way, which – uh, people are going in and stores and just clearing them out uh, is problematic. But, uh, you know, I, I think margins will be under pressure because it's so difficult. And Jerry was talking about value. It, it's a value driven consumer. And, you know, as an inflation has been pushing prices up over the last couple of years, retailers haven't been able to pass that pricing through. They're trying uh, but they're not going they haven't been able to do it. And so I think mar- margins will still remain under pressure, uh, probably into the next six, six months.
3: Yeah. I mean, feeding into the margin piece of the puzzle, Jerry has been inventory and a destocking stocking and inventory a correction there. Ha- has that, has that happened? Are, are we now stable in terms of a right sized? I should say, in terms of what stores have for consumers going into the, into the fall and holiday season demand?
12: Well, there's two different questions in a way. By and large, most retailers have reduced their inventory, but it doesn't mean they have the right inventory. So I still remain concerned uh, when I walk into a Target store and I see out-of-stocks at levels I've never seen before. So obviously, they've been able to cut the inventory but have been able to put it in the right places in the product that's selling as opposed to simply cutting the overall total. So I think that's a problem that's still pervasive. It's still going to take another season. And if sales are slow this fall, as they might be, with the interest rates, as you mentioned, with the, the uh, consumer credit card debt that you mentioned, with student loan repayments, it's possible we're going to have a slow holiday. We may, may be right back in the inventory soup when we turn the corner after
2: the holidays. OK, Bill, quickly, uh, outside of Walmart, who do you think does best retail wise this earnings season?
9: Well, I, you know, I like T.J. Maxx. I like Home Depot, though Jerry's right. They got huge numbers to cycle Um and I think home improvement will continue to. go. So that category might be might be soft, but but I like Home Depot, too.
3: All right. Bill Simon and Jerry Storch. Great to have you. Our pleasure. OK, well, John, just taking a look uh, at the markets, the Russell finished the day lower today. Uh, but it looks like everything else, including the Dow, eked out a gain. Um, you know, we're sort of in that seasonal low mm-hmm. midsummer volumes. Uh, but sucking out of the market here and then the expectation that September could be weak, which is what we typically see.
2: Still stuff going on. We're talking about uh, Home Depot. Uh, also, this difference between, say, TJX, which isn't just TJ Maxx, also has home goods, which hasn't been performing as well, right? Because mm-hmm. people aren't moving. They're buying the, the home goods. So how does that balance out? What do we hear from Home Depot? Maybe about appliances. That'll be important. Also, we got Jack Henry, which does software for regional banks and Agilent, the original HP, tomorrow.
3: Yeah, and retail sales. And then, of course, Fed Minutes, which will be key on Wednesday as well. So to your point, we still have a lot going on. That's going to do it for us here at Overtime, though.
2: Fast Money starts now.
5: Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. Don't give it to you. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. Wind, and that with- that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Next. go give it to ya. Unlock the energy of the All-electric CDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com.